looking around at you all this evening, I think you've probably all waded up and decided and made up your minds. So thank you for coming. Appreciate the support. It's good to have some people here. We are hoping and praying that this will go out into the ether. And who knows? I think we've, we've had about 150 people have watched our first one online. So that was, that's a lot more than we had actually there the night that we did it. So you never know, do you, what is going to happen when you go online like that. So welcome, everybody. We're going to um, uh, begin now with our, uh, our second episode on the second series, which is actually number eight. So who is Jesus? So there are the list of the ones that we're going to be doing. This, cent this, this central series is primarily about Jesus, about his work, why he came, and the impact upon it, and what we do about it at the end of the day. So we're looking at the, who is Jesus, and we go straight into just slightly review last week for those that uh, weren't able to get there, um, where we asked the question, what went wrong? Why, why was it necessary for Jesus to come? And uh, you've got the picture there of Adam and Eve looking rather seductively at one another, slightly, uh, slyly. I mean, I think they're, they're really quite good pictures, really. But we were saying that, that actually that's where it starts. Something went awry in the human heart and spirit. It doesn't mean we're all evil. Uh, we have good aspirations, we do noble things, we can be courageous, we can be self-sacrificing, but we have a tendency to slip back to these other things. So unbelief, self-centeredness, pride, and all of those kinds of things, they kind of well up in the human heart quite easily. And even those of us that have become Christians and have given our lives to Christ can find that they're not completely alien. They do still arise along the way. It was my suggestion that that is the root of much of the human uh, misery that you find in the world, right the way down from individual family breakups, difficulties, personal stress, conflict, mental troubles, and everything else, right the way to problems with nations and so on. Serious consequences then have arisen for society, down through generations, really. And we can see something of that happening in our own generation, particularly as our culture abandons a Christian worldview and embarks upon a, 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 what is probably a humanistic and a secularistic worldview. That is impacting upon our society at every level. So we were looking at all of that, but of course the Bible says that that also has eternal consequences. Uh, that this is actually a fatal malady, that it will kill us in the end. You know, like uh, sin is a bit like cancer. It's like a killer disease. It is serious. If it were not serious, we wouldn't need saving. Why would Jesus come into the world to die on a cross if we had just a mild case of a something that was slightly not quite right? The Bible teaches that our condition is extremely serious and it required that kind of an extreme remedy. Okay, so God sent Jesus into the world to save us. So we're going to look at the question, who is Jesus, under four headings. Number one, we're going to look at the existence of Jesus. Not going to spend a lot of time on that because I, I, I think there's not, that's not such an area of debate currently. I don't know, but I think not. But I will mention that. Secondly, we're going to look at the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was a real man. And I've been really interesting as I've been preparing that to have a real sense of his reality and presence with me as I've been putting it together. So that's great. Many Christians will say that the, the profound thing that happened to them was a sense of the reality of Jesus. You suddenly find that there is a, somebody, one with you to, to guard your back, to stand with you, 
to be a companion, to embolden you and give you strength in all sorts of ways. So we're going to look at the humanity of Jesus, we're going to look at the claims of Jesus. Even though he was human, he was a lot more than human. And you can't read the New Testament without taking that on board and coming to, the, to that conclusion. And then fourthly, we're going to spend a bit more time on the evidence for Jesus. Like we want to do all the way through, is this credible? Uh, I mean, how does he stand among all the other religious leaders in the world? Well, I'm not going to go into those tonight, but I'm certainly going to say that he stands head and shoulders, unique, unlike any other. Okay, the existence of Jesus then, first of all, the Russian dictionary for some years ago, uh, under the heading of Jesus Christ, had this as its definition, a mythical figure who never existed. Um, well, you tell where they say. I don't think it would say that today in a Russian dictionary. That's the irony that with the fall of communism, there's been a resurgence, certainly, of a, of a fairly potent, maybe possibly nationalistic form of Christianity. So they wouldn't say that anymore, but that was certainly said in those days. We're going to look then at evidence to counter that, uh, both outside the New Testament and inside it. Okay. Uh, so evidence from outside then of the existence of Jesus. I mean, it's interesting, I only know of three contemporary writers at the time of Jesus in the Roman Empire. The first one was Tacitus, who was born in 55 AD, so he's slightly after Jesus, 20 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. Um, but he certainly mentions Jesus as a historical figure. This is not really, um, that's why I'm not going to spend a long time on it, it's not really in serious doubt. You, the whole of history takes an about turn, a dramatic change about at the time when Jesus came into the earth. If, if Jesus didn't do that, you'd have to invent somebody else that did do that. So you've got Tacitus, you've got Suetonius, who wrote a little bit later, lived from 70 to 122, again mentions Jesus. There's not that many contemporary writers that we have their records from way back there. No doubt there were more, but you know, their writings have not really endured apart from just these few. The third one is interesting. He's Josephus, who was a Jewish uh, writer, but more of a Roman Jew, if you know what I mean. He wouldn't have been a devout Jew, he was a Roman Jew, Romanized, he moved in the aristocratic circles of the Roman Empire, and uh, he was the most contemporary. He was born in 37, some few years after Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem and lived until 95 AD. But certainly, his, in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, you got a very interesting quotation. Um, I had to sort of look this up to sort of remember it, but he says, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to the cross, those who had first come to love him did not see. It's not, that's pretty much the New Testament, isn't it? You know, there's not much departure there from one of the major contemporary historians of the time. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, 
has still to this day not disappeared. I think that's really interesting. So in terms of the existence of Jesus, I think you can say it's pretty cast iron, pretty watertight. We know that he visited this planet, this earth, 2,000 years ago. What about the New Testament? Well, people say, well, the New Testament's biased. Well, it's interesting, they don't say that about other ancient documents. They would tend to take other ancient documents as read for what's in them. But there is a tendency to say, well, surely the New Testament was written long after the event. Surely it's been distorted with the years. Surely the stories have been exaggerated. Surely the Bible has been added to, and so on and so on. I say they don't make these accusations about any other ancient writings or works. We take them for gospel. But for this one, there is a huge... Uh, amount of doubt that's been put up. So how credible is the New Testament? Well, uh, this is a, a list of other ancient works that were written and you can see, if you look at the, uh, the thing, that's the works of Herodotus, um, probably haven't read him recently, I wouldn't exactly recommend him for bedtime reading. Um, he was writing from 488 to 428 BC, so he predates Christ by nearly 500 years. The earliest copy of his manuscript, of any manuscript of his, AD 900. Uh, so that is something like 1300 years after it was actually written. And nobody says, oh, well, Herodotus, he's probably been changed and altered around, even though our oldest manuscripts of his are 1300, I mean, imagine that, 1300 years after he first put them down. If you look at Thucydides, oops, oh dear, there we go. Uh, Thucydides pressed the wrong button. Uh, again, ancient writer, AD, interesting, AD 900. That's, I think, because it was around about that time they started to invent papyrus or manuscripts that were, that were reasonably lasting. Anything older than that, by and large, has, has fallen to pieces and become threadbare. So there isn't much that goes er earlier than that. So again, you see this, uh, 1,300 years. The number of copies of both of them are eight. That's, that, you know, in all the museums of the world, there are only eight copies. Nobody doubts those works, but if you look about it, it's all based on a fairly slim bit of evidence. If you look at Tacitus, AD 100, so his earliest copy is 11, 1,100,000 years. There are 20 of that. Well, you get the, you get the picture. So there are, there are simply no ancient documents that are, that are within a thousand years of their original record. Um, and, uh, and people believe... Now, when you come to the New Testament, uh, that was written, it's reckoned here, between the ages of about 40 to 100 AD, give or take a bit. Probably, that's a, probably rather a long... I think it would be a bit shorter than that, but it, certainly over a, a fairly short period of the first century, um, the earliest copy of that, of, of uh, parts of it, are at AD 130. Uh, there are copies of John's Gospel and other bits and fragments. That's just a miraculous that they've actually got anything that goes back that far. I mean, it's nearly 2,000. How is it actually, it's, how is it held together? Um, uh, needless to say, there are not the the the, biggest, the the earliest full manuscript is AD 330. You've got a full manuscript, the whole Bible, uh, that is as old as 330. There is there is no other ancient document like that. So the idea that it's been changed and altered, no, they found in the very oldest fragments. They are spot on, pretty much from our Bibles that we have today. So I think we can be pretty confident. Uh, in, the, uh, in the record of the coming and the living of Jesus. And look at the numbers of documents there. 5,000 plus 
um, of Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin, 9,000... I mean, the, the world is absolutely littered with stuff. Spread through all the museums of the earth, of the Bible. There is no other book like it anywhere uh, in terms of ancient documents. So I think we can say 100% spot on, Jesus definitely came. Okay. Uh, secondly, the humanity of Jesus. Now that picture there is really very interesting. I don't know whether anybody's come across it at all. It was a picture painted by a young girl from Lithuanian parents who was only eight years old. And she, she said that she'd actually seen Jesus and numbers of times in Revelations. And eventually she felt the Lord prompting her. And I say, she painted this one. She called it the uh, Prince of Peace. Uh, she painted this picture of Jesus that she saw. And you may say, well, that's, 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 a, that's a very good picture. The fascinating thing is that, uh, and we'll, I'll, I'll say more about these a bit later on. Fascinating thing is that this, this lad, Colton Burpo, who had a, I mean, what a terrible name. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't say that online, but there you go. Um, but anyway, Colton Burpo, um, uh, he had a near-death experience when he was four years old, and he, uh, he, he said he, Jesus met with him and his parents tried every way they could to get him to sort of describe what happened and some of the things and I say we'll look at that later on uh, during the talk but, but the, to cut a long story short he could, when he saw this picture he said that's him wow. he's seen loads of other pictures he said no that's not him you know classic pictures actors playing pictures now I think you know my feeling is that often we you know we, we've seen so many people playing Jesus you know, so many portraits, so much art, so many stained glass windows, you tend to, you, you always seem to think he's a kind of a symbolic man. You know I mean, you don't really, you don't think of him as an actual person that had a certain look, that if you saw, you know, that other people would see him and they'd see the same person there. I, well, I didn't. But uh, looking at this, it could be that's the nearest thing we've got a to a photograph of Jesus. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be absolutely certain about that, but it does seem to me to be that way. And the Bible makes plain that Jesus is not just a kind of, he's not just a mythical figure, he's not just a kind of stained glass picture. He's not just um, kind of like a, a composite of everybody's ideas. He's not a symbolic figure, he's actually, he's actually a real man. Who, who's got certain characters, he's got a face. And if you see him tomorrow, he'll look the same as he looked yesterday. And if one other person sees him, he'll look the same there. And I thought, that's really interesting. And as we go through the, the New Testament, we find this confirmed, that he, that he grows up, he grows in wisdom and stature, the Bible says in, in Luke chapter 2, that he labours. They say, is, it, is not this the carpenter, Jesus? So he followed on in his father's... Um, uh, uh, work and trade it, 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 almost certainly he would have done work I mean he didn't he didn't come into his ministry till he was 30 and all that time ensuing that is largely unknown to us we could imagine that he was laboring he got hungry he sat down by the side of the road uh, he was tempted uh, taken out into the wilderness so we, we know the story of his temptation uh, he got weary tired hungry there was certain vulnerability in him. At the tomb of Lazarus, he was weeping. And, uh, and there were times when he was fearful, when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. I, I really don't want to do this. So you can see that this is, this is not kind of, this is not total Superman. 
This is a man who comes among us who really is a man. Uh, so the humanity of Jesus, secondly. Thirdly, the claims of Jesus. He was all, he was all that we've said, but he is also a, a whole lot more than that. Now, Billy Connolly, that well-known theologian, said, I can't believe in Christianity, but I do believe Jesus was a wonderful man. Uh, well, there you go. That sounds pretty good if you say it quickly, and I think a lot of people feel like that. Um, that, which is really why I put him there. That is a view that Jesus was somehow a great man, great teacher, a good man, etc., etc., etc. But, but I, I do not want to go down the road of saying he was the son of God. C.S. Lewis, however, who is perhaps a slightly more uh, equipped theologian than Billy Connolly, said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. Think about it. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, I quite like that turn of phrase, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. But don't let us, he doesn't mince his words, does he? Don't let us come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to, he didn't intend to. And we'll look in a moment at things he said, but you can't, he can't simply be a wonderful man, as Billy Connolly has said. He, 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 his teaching, again and again, not just in an odd throwaway phrase, but again and again, is uncompromisingly, um, I, I was going to say uncompromisingly egotistic. You know, now if it was anybody else, we would say that is egotistic. If he is the Son of God, then that's justified and that's right. See, um, But I mean, if you look at the, the things that he said, where he said, I am, I am that. He didn't, he, he didn't even keep saying, I mean, he did pay tribute to his Father and often pointed to God, but often he spoke as though he was God. I'm the bread of life. Uh, it, he who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. I mean, what? What? I am totally able to satisfy every need in a human heart. What? Well, you, you know, you can't just say that if you're just a bloke. Uh, I am the light of the world. Uh, a little bit further on in the same gospel, Jesus... <coughs> yeah, well, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you want to find the way, I am the way. If you want light in your life, if you want inspiration, if you want enlightenment, don't follow after Buddha, come to me. I mean, Buddha at the end of his life said, I'm still searching for the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am. Well, You've you got to say that. Pretty, that's pretty strong. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall not die. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What? and I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, we've already been um, trailering that particular thing. No one can come to God except through me. You know, these, these sayings make him unique, outrageous, really. Uh, there, is, there is nobody else on the ballpark. I can't understand churches that try to put Jesus alongside loads of other leaders. He, he won't let you do that. He is unique. But, and then, of course, this one here. 
to me, is a, is a, is a bit, I'm going to read this a little bit at length because he, he says, the Jews exclaim, now we know that you're demon-possessed. They, they didn't like what he was saying, you can tell that. Abraham died and so did the prophets and yet you say that if anyone keeps your word he will never taste death. You see, they, they were offended by this. This stuff is too strong. You're taking too much on yourself. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? That's the question. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. And though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Doesn't mince words, does he? Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw, he saw it and was glad. Your father, I mean, Abraham died 2,000 years ago. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was going to see my day. And then they go, you, you know, they, 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 spot the, they spot the deliberate mistake. But you're not, you're not 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and, and you've seen Abraham? And they thought they got him there. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And you'll remember, of course, that when God met with Moses in the wilderness and Moses said, what's your name? God said, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you. I mean, you couldn't mistake what Jesus was saying. I mean, it's grammatically difficult to get your head around before Abraham was I am, but what he's saying is I always was. I, 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 I am. You know, other, others, others come. I was. I am. I, I don't know how to say it. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple ground. So, I mean, you get, it's unmistakable, isn't it? And then, of course, there's all the things about me. Come to me. In Matthew 8, come to me, all labour and a heavy laden. I give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. Follow me, said Jesus to the disciples. Again and again, follow me. Come follow me. Receive me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. I'm totally able to represent him. I'm completely authorised to act on heaven's behalf. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Uh, welcome me and you welcome the Father that sent me. Love me, said Jesus. So, I mean, if it's all constantly sort of focusing in on himself. You, the claims of Jesus are incredible. And here's one in John 14, 9. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, do you want to know what God looks like? Hello? Who could say that? No, no man could say that. Buddha never said that. Muhammad never said that. No leader ever said that. If, it's, if it wasn't true, it would be outrageous. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. It has to be. He's either true or it's completely false and blasphemous. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He claimed he had authority to judge the world. Incredible claims that can easily pass us by, particularly if we're familiar with the Bible. But for any that are not familiar with it and think, well, who is this Jesus? You have to say, according to the New Testament, he is extremely big. He really outranks everybody. There is nobody in heaven and on earth that is larger and greater and more high uh, in, the, in, the, in the state of things than he is, the Father's only Son. When... Uh, 
Judas said, not Judas, when, uh, um, what's the guy? The disciple, Thomas, that's it. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. Uh, He doesn't doesn't, uh, tell him, you know, don't call me that. He just receives it. Um, as only he could. And he said to the, the authorities when he was standing before them, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and seated at the right, right hand of the Father. So in terms of Jesus' claims, uh, we have to say they, they go a long way. What about uh, actual concrete evidence? This is, I'm going to finish now with this fourth one. It'll take a bit of a time on that, but uh, it's worth doing. First of all, in his words themselves, I mean, you could, you could read the New Testament and you would find the most astonishing things. And I recommend, if you haven't done that, you do. Um, but certainly, if you just take a smattering of some of the things, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, pray for those that despitefully use you, for so you are children of your Father in heaven. I mean, well, that's what you'd expect God to say. You know what I mean? I remember even as a young person, I, I came across the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and I thought, actually, that is exactly it. That is spot on. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, they're hanging him up on a cross and scorning and mocking him in his moment of greatest weakness. And he says, Father, forgive them. But you know, you see what's in a man when he's under pressure, don't you? When, when everything is against him, you understand what, what, what is in him comes out of him. He's not putting on an act now. This is him. And what comes out of him is grace and love and beauty. When the woman is taken in adultery and dragged before him, he says, he, 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 he kneels down on the ground and writes on the ground, and then he stands up and he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You remember the mob were yelling for her blood, and he, and he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And you think, that's just what God would say, just how God would speak. So just in his teaching, so I do recommend, if anybody actually watching this online, that you... If you've never read the Gospels, read them through. Not take you a long time, but to read the things that he said and did with an open mind, you will be amazed at what you'll come across. His deeds, of course, in Matthew 14 and 22 to 36, you'll remember how he comes walking on the water to, to, to Peter. You think, how did he do that? What kind, what kind of normal scientific principles do you have to violate to walk on water? I can't, I can't even begin to imagine how he did it. Um, and it's not just him. He, Peter says to him, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you. What an idiot. Why, what did he do that for? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and Jesus says, Come. And bless him, he steps out of the boat and he starts to walk, then sees the storm and the wind and the waves and starts to sink. And Lord, help me. Poor father. That was him all over, wasn't it? But, uh, but then Jesus took his hand and lifted him up. And so he not only had the capacity to walk on water himself, he could do it for Peter as well. I mean, he's got all authority, all power. He, he calms winds and waves, everything. The whole, he created it. He brought it forth according to the Bible. And of course, you remember this one where they opened the, um, uh, the, the ceiling and they brought a guy down in Luke uh, chapter 5. And I want to just read this one, uh, a few verses of it, because it's, it's the way that he speaks to the leaders there and the things that he says are, are pretty amazing. Uh, so Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through. One day as he was teaching the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there and the power of the Lord uh, was present for him to heal the sick. 
And some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. They lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees didn't like that. It completely passed them by what was actually happening. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Precisely. That's exactly the point. Nobody can. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Amen. It's not only his deeds and his words, there is his fulfillment of prophecy. In this again, he becomes unique. It is said that Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies given over a period of something like 500 years. I've never counted them, but I got that from somebody else. 300 prophecies uh, over that huge period of time. He was, he was foreseen in a way, as far as I know, nobody else ever was. 29 prophecies were fulfilled on the one day, the day that he died. Everything kind of channeled in and came to came to, together at that point. There is no precedent for this, to the best of my knowledge, anywhere in the annals of history. There is nobody that was foreseen in that way as he was. There is no other leader or teacher or prophet for whom that could be true. <coughs> when we get to Isaiah 53, some people would say we, we reached the peak of it, we reached the zenith. Um, when you remember that was written 750 BC, 750 years. That's like somebody in the dark ages making a prophecy about the 20th century. Uh, 750 years BC and he, and the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. He's hit it on the head. And in fact, again, if you'd like to read that through Isaiah 53, you'll find that it's full of, of meaning and application for what happened. What about his resurrection? <clears throat> well, um, I, I will mention that because we're talking about evidence. And I suppose for, for every Christian, um, the resurrection is the evidence par excellence. Now you have to say, in terms of the resurrection, I mean, often people that oppose uh, these things never really deal seriously with the issue, so I shall try to do that uh, this evening. There are four alternatives, really, as far as I can see, uh, to his resurrection. Either he didn't die in the first place, and some people have said that, he just swooned, they put him in a tomb and he revived and so on. Uh, although, physiologically, doctors have said such a thing would be extremely unlikely and it's probably cancelled out by the fact that somebody, a guard in John 19, 34, stuck a spear in his side and blood and water gushed out. There will be a sign that his internal organs were completely flooded through and he died of uh, asphyxiation. He'd, he'd drowned in his own body juices, so they say. 
you know, and, and, and in no day, nobody would have known the physiology of that, but the very fact that he was pierced in the side and such a huge quantity of blood and water came flowing out was a pretty good indication that he was already, by this time, dead. And the Romans apparently knew that too. Secondly, the disciples stole the body and spirited it away. And in fact, the religious authorities did actually uh, spread that around as a, as a sort of a rumour and told the guards to tell people that that was what had happened. The guards were only too pleased to agree to that, of course, because it got them off the hook. Um, but, uh, but why would they do that? How would they do that? How would they overcome the guards that were there? How would they get over the Roman Empire? Where would they take him? What would they do with a dead corpse? Where would they hide it where nobody could find it? I mean, really, the authorities were hot on them. It's unbelievable. And why would they, why would they then, see, having a rotting corpse lying about somewhere secret, then go out with a bold message that Jesus has risen? to the point that they're willing to die in the arena in order to justify it. Come on. People don't behave like that. When Jesus died, the disciples were beaten, defeated. They felt that everything he told them was actually not true after all, that the, all the glory had gone and they were broken people. They would not have hatched a pot like this. And if they had, it wouldn't have lasted for any time at all. It would have been exposed. Thirdly, the authorities stole the body. But that, again, would be incredible and extremely unlikely because if the authorities had stolen the body, they would almost certainly have produced it when they realised what a bad mistake that had been. It would not have been difficult to stop the Christian faith from getting off the ground. You say your Messiah is risen and alive? Well, we, well what's this then? They'd trundle the rotting corpse through Jerusalem, wouldn't they? They'd make a display of it and a show of it. The Christian gospel would never have got off the ground in the first place. Uh, had they done that. So uh, these are not possibilities. There is only actually one left, and that is that he did actually die from the dead, rise from the dead. Incredible as that may seem to be to us. Uh, that, uh, that, I mean, and if God gave life to us in the first place, that's miracle enough. It's certainly no difficulty to breathe back the life into uh, the incorruptible Son of God and raise him from the dead. That's not a hard thing for God to do. And that seems to me to be the only, looking at it totally rationally, that is the only explanation for what happened. C.S. Lewis, that we've already mentioned, <clears throat> was not always a Christian. He was converted from atheism and he was a, he was a philosopher and a, and a professor at university and quite a bright guy and had been an atheist up until the age of 33. And, uh, but then when, he, when, he, when his eyes were open and he realised, he said, we are faced with a frightening alternative. The man we're talking about was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has indeed landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. That was his conclusion. Interestingly enough, this is a bit of a side issue, but it's quite relevant. There were some excavations done in the garden tomb in Jerusalem, which many believe is actually the tomb that Jesus was, uh, was buried in for the three days. And uh, the, the excavations are off over there to the right, along the escarpment that forms the, the Golgotha, the, the Skull Hill, if you could call it that. And uh, a number of amateur archaeologists were digging down uh, the face of the rock 
mainly because God actually re revealed it to them and told them to do it. I haven't got time to go into the details of it here. But that as they dug down, it was really difficult, quite hard going, quite solid rock in some places, loads of boulders and stones. But they followed the wall of the escarpment down under the ground and they found, uh, well you can see it there, uh, a lower layer. That's the existing layer. It's known now that the, the, the land is about two metres higher than it once was at the time of Jesus. Everything is buried down. But they found that this, uh, the, the rock came down and there was sort of stone built uh, into it there with a kind of ledge, like a sort of an altar or something like that, uh, into the stone. But what was even more amazing, down in the, in the bedrock, uh, there were four cross holes. Uh, there were, uh, or at, least at, the, at the time they just identified them as square holes. Uh, in the ground. There were three there together in the front and then there was one higher one and a higher bit of ground at the back. All of them have been uh, filled in with stone plugs that were actually fashioned and shaped for it. They came to the conclusion that this was the original crucifixion site. Now I mean that doesn't fit with the traditional sites or anything but it's amazing how many of the traditional sites are probably not true at all. But this was what they believed. They believed that originally it was a stoning site. It was just outside the, the, it was outside the Damascus Gate, the northern gate of Jerusalem and it was a place where people were executed by the Jews. They throw stones against an embankment which is the best safest thing to do isn't it rather than have an open back towards it. So there were loads of stones and boulders around that they dug up as they were going along uh, but the Romans must have taken it over and fashioned it and cut the holes into it so they could make it a, a site for crucifixions. So it's believed that we could be in the original, and it's right next door to the garden tomb which may well be the place where he was laid. Now interestingly, you already have noticed that as they dug out they found the edges of a huge diameter rolling stone. Uh, they calculated from that which they'd uh, dug up that the stone itself, if they were to dig it right up, was about 13 feet in diameter. When they went to measure the diameter of a stone that would need to fit the garden tomb, it was actually exactly 13 feet. They came to the conclusion that, uh, because they found all around it, this is an above view, they came to the conclusion that this had been an early Christian worship site, that they'd actually enc encased it around the wall. As you remember, the church became very strong in Jerusalem in the early days. Many of the priests became believers and so on and so on. So this was a, a site of worship. There was a kind of remains of the wall. Or I know that's the altar, please. That's the main cross hole and that's the rolling stone. And they made it a celebration of the fact that Jesus was alive. And don't you think that's fascinating? I find that amazing, interesting. That's not all they found. They found that the, the central cross hole, the one at the back, which you can just see a bit of it there with the stone over it, uh, that the central cross hole had, had a kind of a... Oh, there you go. There's the plug. You can see the sort of measurement of it. I, I would think that's probably pretty near 18 inches of diameter on that, I, I would think. I'm not sure. But that means they're quite large holes. They had significant um, posts put in them. But uh, what you also find is that in one of the cracks going off the corner of that cross hole, there's a, there, is a dark, there was a dark powdery material that they discovered. I mean, they actually scraped this up for a sample to try and get it tested in a laboratory, um, but came to the conclusion, in fact, uh, that, uh, that, that a huge quantity of blood may well have poured out from, the, from whoever was last on that, in that place. 
um, and poured down and into that crack and down. They actually got down further. That's another whole story. Can't do that now, but we'll do that another time. Um, and, they, and they found that something like 20, 20 feet down, right the way through, there was a crack riven right through the rock and that that dark stuff went right down that crack and then came out into what they, I mean, it took them about five years, I think, of visiting backwards and forwards to finally excavate. This was really hard digging uh, into the solid bedrock of the thing. But they found underneath there, you're not going to believe this, they found what they believed to be the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I mean, that is a, it's all been covered up again now. And nobody's saying anything publicly, because you could imagine that would start the Third World War in the Middle East if the Ark of the Covenant was discovered to be right there under that. But for those of us that are believers, it is incredible. Because uh, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, was the mercy seat of God. That was the place where the blood of the Lamb had to be sprinkled in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. And what an amazing thing that when the Lamb of God should come to the earth, God, 500 years earlier, had secured the Ark of the Covenant in a grotto way down below so that the blood would then drink. How many things do you have to bring together to do this? That's incredible. Uh, well, some people say, I don't believe it. I believe it. Uh, I've no reason to doubt it. In fact, it's exactly the sort of thing God would do. Uh, God is a brilliant planner and he plans over millennia, over hundreds of years. The dark material was taken to a, an Israeli laboratory for testing. It was warmed in a saline solution and it was found to be human blood and they found that it was actually still alive. As they, they said that shouldn't happen. Uh, but of course, the Bible does say that he would not allow his blood to see corruption. Could it be that the blood of the risen Christ also continued to live? I, I mean, that makes, that makes prickles go down my, my neck to think of that. Anyway, that, I'm only reporting to you what they said. Uh, the, the, the lab workers in the, in the Israeli, who were Jews, of course, they said to him, where did you get this blood? They were quite astonished by it. They did, this should not be. This blood should not be. And the guy that found it, Ron Wyatt, he said, this is the blood of your saviour. What, what a thing to say. This is the blood of your saviour. Those guys were never the same again. I have not yet heard what happened to them after that. Here's the interesting thing. The blood contained 24 chromosomes. Now you know that normal human blood, I'm sure you do, has 46 chromosomes. You get 23 from your mother and 23 from your father. This only had 24. This had all the chromosomes from Mary plus one Y chromosome to make Jesus male from the father. Well, you get a lot of stuff there, don't you? If anybody wants evidence, I mean, I'm amazed that stuff is coming through now in these last days that I find incredibly persuasive. And I don't think it's, um, it's an accident that it's happening at this time as the world moves towards the end of time. The Bible says a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, and, and we will call him Emmanuel. Could it be that the blood of the only begotten Son of God has left a mark even there upon this earth for men to find? As I say, it's not already available. It's not in the public domain. Not everybody will know about it. Uh, I've heard about it and no others have heard about it and I would like want to spread it around if people are in doubt about Jesus and about his reality and uh, take that on board. Uh, okay, within years, many Christians were to die for their faith. Most of the apostles were martyred. I think all apart from John, who died of old age, having been exiled on Patmos and been given the book of Revelation, 
who wrote the Gospel, uh, all the others, as far as I know, were martyred, some in far-flung places. But it felt like the enemy eventually caught up with them. <clears throat> what of their testimony? Was it hallucination? I mean, they said, we, we, he's alive, we've seen him alive. We saw him dead and now he's alive. We, we can't be mistaken about that. Was it imagination? You know, what did they, you can't get a hallucination with hundreds of people. The Bible said there were at least 500 people that saw Jesus alive after he dead. You can't, you can't do that. A hallucination is, of, is a personal thing, a solo person. Max, maybe one or two might see something. Though even then it gets harder and harder the more people involved. Imagination, well, how could you imagine it? Conspiracy, well, they made it up so they could, so they could get sales on Bibles. Come on. What, you know, who but a fool would die for a lie? These people paid the price of their testimony with their lives in the arena. And that itself is part of what God has laid down for the conviction of men and women. We, we don't have to believe, but, if we, but we have to fly in the face of rationale and determine that we will not believe. And if we decide I will not believe, then fair enough. God will give us the freedom to do that. St. Paul, some years later, you remember, was very much like that. And a breathing out threats, he sought to persecute the church and God met him. And this is the record from the, from the New Testament. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light. I mean, God can be very selective about what people see and hear. He doesn't have to, you know, he can, he can focus in and reveal himself to one person on their own. Other people might be included a bit. So the, these people saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you've been assigned to do. The brilliance of the light had blinded me. And you remember they led him into Damascus, into a ministry that, uh, that after Jesus would also transform the world. Well, what about today? Is it all a long time ago and far, far away? Not at all. I mean, it's very interesting. As I was preparing this, I, you, I was reading uh, accounts everywhere of God meeting with people, particularly Muslims. You know, there are great harvests going out in many parts of the world, not in the West, by and large, I suspect. Though even there, it may not be as grim as we think. There's a lot more happening than we realise. But not like this. About three months, these were uh, in uh, Syria. After the war there, apparently many Muslims are turning to Christ in Syria. Uh, because of the, often saying, I was doubtful about Islam before, but after what's happened here, I'm now very doubtful about Islam. About three months ago, I was given a vision of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is Russia who shared this, a wife. I don't know whether, can you see them there? Oh, I haven't got, oh, that's a shame. No, I haven't got, I haven't got them without the words on. I'm sorry, I meant to do that. Um, so you could see them. There, she's, uh, she's there uh, in the background with a, a little baby. And there's her husband in the foreground with their little son. I was sleeping and all of, and all of a sudden I saw Jesus Christ in white. He said, I am Christ. You will have a beautiful daughter. I was eight months pregnant and a month later we received our beautiful daughter. 
Interesting, really. That's all, that's all the Lord said to her, as far as we know. That's all that's recorded. It was just a word to her, of reassurance, to convince her and convict her. Uh, when he met, when, uh, uh, when he met her husband, about the same time, the husband had a dream too. I saw Jesus Christ, and he was dressed in white, same figure. He said to me, I am your saviour. You will follow me. Interesting, different word to the man. Indication may be that the man, God meant the man to be the lead in this. And of course, in Muslim culture, he'd have to be. You know, there's no way that she'd be able to stand and take a lead if, uh, if he wasn't with her. And so I find it interesting that you get these different things, but the same Jesus appears, and, and this is happening, I believe, literally to thousands of people. Mission societies and Christian workers are reporting that people are being converted in ways that we could never do by our evangelism, but they're seeing Jesus. Uh, often under great extremity and difficulty, but seeing Jesus. Colin Burpo, I mentioned, uh, who at the age of four years old had a near-death experience. He had a burst appendix and was rushed into hospital and it, uh, he hovered on the brink of life and death. A, a little, bright little fellow there. And I mean, it's actually written, his father's written some of his story in Heaven is for Real. It's also a video, so if you're interested, you can uh, get that. It's, it's, it's certainly worth, uh, worth getting a hold of. Um, but uh, this, is, this is what Colton said. He was able to look down to see the doctor operating on him. Well, that's a familiar thing. The number of people that have had those a kind of out-of-the-body experience under sort of traumatic conditions. He saw his dad praying in the waiting room and yelling at God while he prayed. When he told this to his father, his father was amazed because he was all on his own. How would the child know that? He would not expect. He said, I got so angry with God, I was yelling at God. Give me, give me back my son. He was a pastor. His father's a pastor, I hasten to say. So it's probably slightly uncharacteristic. He wasn't being very pastorly at that moment because the life of his son was in doubt and he saw this. He said, I saw him in a waiting room yelling at God. He saw his, his mum as well in another place, uh, phoning up on the phone, getting people to pray for them and everything else. That's so not up there. He saw his miscarried sister whom no one had told him about. He didn't even know he had a sister. His mother had miscarried years before. She hugged him while he was in heaven and he knew she was his sister. And he came back to his parents and said, why didn't you tell me I had a sister? I mean, they are totally bowled over by this because, I mean, he's four. He couldn't couldn't have made it up. He met Pop, his great-grandfather, who died 30 years before he was born, and, and he knew what he looked like. You know, they showed him pictures of him, you know, like old pictures of him um, that might be, might have seen on the mantle. He says, no, that's not him. He was younger than that. And eventually they managed to get a hold of an old picture of a great-grandfather somewhere in the annals. He said, that's him. And uh, he, he shared impossible to know details about his surgery, about his family members and a whole lot of stuff. So it's really, if you want evidence... That, that Jesus is who he said he is, here it is. Uh, the most interesting thing was, was, was the question of what Jesus looked like. He, he said, most of the time he said, I spent with Jesus. I mean, it's really beautiful, his description of what Jesus is like and the love that he felt emanating from him and, and, and so on and so on. And, he's, and they said, one, one TV, because these people have all been on television in America, um, one TV interviewer said to him, well, what did he look like? He said, I don't know, he said, but the thing that I remember most of all were his eyes. He said, well, what were his eyes like? He said, they were just, I don't know, I can't say, they were just like sparkling, like a light. 
They said, what, light coming out? I said, I don't know, I can't, I've got no words to describe it. This is pretty good, isn't it, for a young lad? I mean, he's older now, I think he's about 15 now. So it's a few years ago, but, but I mean, a lot of this goes back to way back when, um, with this sense of Jesus. And it was then that the parents, you know, they tried every, every you know, artwork, photo, actor, they could find all the classic pictures of Jesus in films and plays and all kinds of things. He said, no, it wasn't like that, it wasn't like that. And then they got hold of this one by Akiani, um, and uh, he said, that's, that's him. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, they actually met, I mean, that's, that's him and Akiani, the, uh, the artist, the young child artist, uh, that uh, Akiani Kramarik, uh, who painted that picture of, uh, I think one of her pictures is sold for a million pounds, so they grow up in poverty, but they're not poverty-stricken anymore. I mean, I think they said she's written about, she's painted about 200 pictures. She is a, just an industry, she's just, six days a week, she just paints, she's got a passion for painting. Um, her parents were atheists when she, came, when she started telling them she kept getting pictures of Jesus they couldn't understand it you know, they thought well we've not brought her up like that how did she get, how did she get like that her mother was a Lithuanian atheist and her father was a nominal Catholic who never went to church said, how, could, how could she possibly have we never talked about God in our house at all and she started getting all these visions and things from the age of three onwards and they were so, I mean, like, like Colton, they were so sort of mature descriptions of what she saw. Again, she's online, on YouTube. Quite interesting to actually look at the interviews that go back quite a long way on some of the news channels in America. She was getting her vision, well, we said that, from three onwards. She got a passion for art. Her she kept trying to express what she'd seen. Her mother gave her a notepad and a pencil to try and draw it down. So initially, she's drawing pictures. But she said it didn't come immediately. She kind of, you know, but even then, her, her three-year-old pictures are pretty amazing. You'd be pretty pleased if your three-year-old child was able to uh, draw pictures like that. The Prince of Peace, that picture there that you see in the background, uh, was, was painted when she was eight years old. I think she's actually pictured te uh, painted ten pictures of Jesus. Uh, a lot of them from memory that she's had. So evidence for Jesus? Yeah, I think there is. Um, is it a perfect picture? Probably not. But it's probably as near we're going to get it until we see him face to face and one day we shall see him face to face. So question, <coughs> who is Jesus? That's what we started off with coming to an answer. The Bible says he is the pre-existent son of God. He is of massive stature. He's related to the Father, the only begotten son of the Father. Everything else in the whole creation is created. He alone is begotten from the Father. He is of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, said Jesus. <clears throat> he is a real human being, however. God was pleased for his son to come and dwell in Mary. So he was the son of man, but he was also the son of God. He bridges two worlds. He became one of us so that we could be lifted up into his world. We'll look at more of that next week when we think about what Jesus did on the cross. Born of a virgin, we may well now have concrete evidence to confirm that and indicate that. He came into the world to save us. We got ourselves into an awful jam, it has to be said, and that's probably the understatement of the year. Part of our problem is, of course, we always look for somebody else to blame for the problems that we're in. But God never blamed us, but sought to, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so he sent him into the world that all who believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
So the death syndrome that runs through the human race is not inevitable and it's not the final word. God is seeking to save as many as he can out of it all. Who is Jesus? Well, that's it. Next week, as I say, we'll go on from that and we'll be thinking about the cross and why did he have to die and how does his death affect us 2,000 years later. We'll stop now for a cup of tea, I think. And... Uh, and then if anybody's got any questions, we've got some forms up the front and you're welcome to fill in any questions. I hope I can answer them. Good. Okay, everybody. Got some good questions here to, um, to finish off with. <clears throat> Jesus said he's coming back over 2,000 years ago. How many more years will we need to wait until he finally returns? Do you think there is more evidence of Jesus coming within our lifetime as he is revealing himself to an increasing number of Muslims? I think the answer is yes. Again, that's two down the line. We'll be looking at the final return, but I think there is a lot of gathering evidence. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've felt that generally we've been in the last days for possibly the last hundred years as I shall say in a couple of weeks' time, but I think that that is now intensifying and concentrating and there are revelations and visions and Jesus revealing himself and the fact that he's revealing his persona, what he looks like, seeking to draw people to himself indicates to me there's a lot of things. Israel is very significant in the purposes of God, I believe. The whole global uh, system of comparative chaos and disintegration, I think, is also signs that these things are happening. So, yes, I think it could be. Whether it be in my lifetime, I'm not sure, but it could well be in the lifetime of some of you here tonight. I do believe. Even so, come Lord Jesus. For 2,000 years, we prayed in Jesus' name, and we've had evidence of prayers being answered. Have you ever known prayer to be answered in any other name? No. Not a lot more I can say on that, really, is there? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not saying that it hasn't, I just have not come across it, ever. And, I mean, there is, there is, I believe, a unique power in the name of Jesus. I mean, I find it interesting the way that people use the name of Jesus as a swear word. You know, there's power in the name of Jesus, either negatively or positively. And, and even people from other religions use the, the Jesus name as a swear word. You know, you would think that, uh, that, you know, a Buddhist might say, oh, Buddha, you know, when he hit his thumb with a hammer, but they don't. I'm not saying they all say, oh, Jesus, but I mean, no, there's no doubt about it that the, that the name of Jesus is global, either as a swear word or as a persona, as a person. So he is significant. There is nobody like him, I believe. I found it fascinating uh, about the recent discovery of the human blood in the tomb of Christ, what I want to know, did they find more evidence like the linen cloth he was buried in? Yes, they did. <clears throat> uh, they found, I think, the table of the showbread. There were a number of things there. It's believed uh, that, uh, that when the, the, the city of Jerusalem was um, surrounded by the Babylonians at the fall of uh, Jerusalem in about 586 B.C., uh, that the, uh, the religious leaders described, some think the prophet Jeremiah had a hand in it, that you had to find a place to hide the Ark of the Covenant, their most precious 
relic, the, 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 de the demonstration that God was among them. Remember the ark was the mercy seat. It was the place where God was said to dwell between the cherubim. So it was huge significance. I mean, some, there are some words that say, well, it went to Ethiopia. They would never have moved the Ark of the Covenant out of Jerusalem, in my opinion. It was too crucial because it symbolised the fact that God was with them. To move the Ark away from Jerusalem would have been to be forsaken by God. So they wouldn't have done that. But of course, eventually, when the forces, they, they built a siege wall all around Jerusalem, there was no going out and no going in. In fact, I think there was a double wall built by the Babylonians. It was a long siege, extremely painful. And, the, and the, uh, these um, uh, uh, caves run all the way under the, under the Temple Mount, right the way through, under the wall, and to where the Ark was found. There's a, there's a whole network of tunnels that are all connected up, and some of have actually found what looked like little cherubim symbols um, engraved on the cave walls that were there to be a guide for the people that would find the ark, but of course it never was found. It's one of the great mysteries of the Old Testament, it has been. That's why um, Steven Spielberg was able to write his movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, because nobody had ever found the Ark of the Covenant. So, I mean, people will say, well, this isn't, this isn't true either. Uh, so be it. People may make their own choices. I, everything I've found has confirmed it is true. And I, I believe deep down, as I said before, it's exactly what God would do. God would exactly do that. The symbolism is so rich that when the Lamb of God came, his blood um, fell upon the mercy seat. Uh, symbolising, if you like, the end. And the, you remember, the, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So numbers of very significant things. The, the ground quaked when he died. I would think that almost certainly was what enabled the blood to flow down the crack and get down to the bottom. <clears throat> so it wasn't just a, um, a, an earthquake for the sake of it. It had purpose. They didn't find the linen cloth that he was buried in, though. I mean, some people think that's the Turin Shroud. If you uh, anyone followed that up, you can look that up. And it, from what I can see, it could be. Though again, people doubt that it could, but I think it's perfectly possible. It looks like uh, the Turin Shroud has been uh, etched with the uh, likeness and image of a of a man that looks like Jesus. So, uh, so there you go. So there's lots of lots of stuff out there. There are so many versions and translations of the Bible from different languages over a large length of time. Surely, to keep up with the times, how is it that we can truly say the Bible is true and right? It has to be said that although there's loads of versions, there's enormous similarity among many of them. There are fine points of difference, and uh, Bible scholars do take up points and say certain versions are better than others. Some versions are better than others over certain things. Some believe that some of the modern versions are very poor because they've been affected by modern theology. So these things are all things that one has to take into consideration. But I don't believe that the essential message that God wants to give to us has been blurred sufficiently for it to worry us too much. You know, there's no reason why any of us can't spend time devoting ourselves to searching out the truth as far as we are able, and I think all of us, I started with this thing, I, I'm on an adventure, a journey of trying to discover truth. I'm travelling with an open heart and mind, I'm willing to learn, to grow, to find out things, to discover things, to not get so stuck in a rut that I'm unwilling to change, and I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, will continue to teach me and lead me 
until the day when I go home and see him and then it'll all be clear and I'll have it all straight. <clears throat> when Jesus' blood was spilt, was it the blood of God? For it could never die or ever be destroyed. Well, that's an interesting question. I prefer to say that it was the blood of Jesus. Um, I mean, does God have blood? Don't know. Uh, I mean, it seems to me God is supra that. He's bigger than that. He's beyond that. Um, but uh, but I, don't, I can't say for certain, but it would certainly be the blood of Jesus, who was God's son, and it was, if you like, it was mingled with the, you know, it was mingled with the blood of Mary, wasn't it? So you'd have to say, no, that wasn't, that wasn't God's blood. God, if God has blood, it wouldn't be mingled with anybody. Good. Okay, I hope those are satisfactory answers, best I can do. Hopefully see you next week when we'll be looking at the cross. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? And how did that work? How did him dying, one man dying, on behalf of all of us, solve the problem and make it possible for us to be redeemed. Thank you.